0: Well, virtual church, how about that? I keep asking myself all weekend long how I got to be so lucky as to be the first person to ever preach at Rio Vista Church to a nearly empty room. And you know what? there, There are some parts of this that are disappointing to me, sincerely, to be separated from you while you're wherever you are. And yet I think I speak on behalf of every introvert everywhere when I say, it's not that bad. After all, we are a proud people, and since the dawn of time, we have been avoiding large crowds. And so this is nothing new to us. We're right at home, and so don't worry, that the introverts got you. We got you covered. This is going to be okay. But in all seriousness, I will miss getting to see each and every one of you who are out there, uh, getting to shake hands and and hug and say, how you doing? But uh, but I, I do thank God that we live in a day where we can actually have something like virtual church, of all things, that even though we're scattered, uh, we are together as one. And so with that in mind, wherever you may be, whether you're at the beach, your living room, wherever, um, that place right now is holy ground. That place right now is the worship center of Rio Vista Church. And so with that in mind... I want to pick up right where we left off in our study of Ephesians in chapter 5. And while you turn there, I'm going to point out that the first word of chapter 5 is therefore. And there's this silly saying that I caught somewhere along the way that when there's a therefore that begins a sentence or a paragraph, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And that means that I'm going to ask myself, what is it that he is therefore What What has he already said that he's tying a bow around? And so... Tom has already brought attention to some of these things, but it, there are a few things that I'll, I'll list that he has said about the Christian, the life of a follower of Christ. Uh, he, he has said that we're predestined for adoption. He said that we've been given a glorious inheritance. That's going to appear today in our, in our passage. He said we were made part of one body and we're on one mission, thus our series title. We've been reconciled to God in Christ We've been taken as prisoners of Christ who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, and together as a church we've been called to unity. And so he begins in verse 1 of Ephesians 5, he says, Walk in love, therefore be imitators of God, which is really just a way of summarizing everything he's already said. Uh, Be imitators of God as beloved children. He's saying, you are, you know, your identity, therefore walk accordingly. And if we're his children, then we will naturally grow to take on the family likeness. Uh, soon he's going to tell us some of the do's and don'ts, like what that looks like, what a child of God does and doesn't do. But before we're able to really appropriately receive that, he wants to anchor it once again in our identity as sons and daughters of God. And so rooted in who we are, otherwise it will become legalism. We'll obey out of a sense of duty uh, and our own effort and without any kind of sense of a growing love and, and, and dependency upon God. And so if we are his children, he's going to say later, then this is going to follow. But first, uh, as, a, as an illustration, I, I was thinking about this, taking on the family likeness idea. And I remembered that, you know, just a few years ago, I had never worn glasses in my life. I had perfect vision. I prided myself on having eagle eyes. I could spot the police officer who was uh, radar ready like 2 miles down the road prided myself on that with all my friends when they were driving a few years ago i realized things were getting blurry i was getting headaches every day i finally owned up to it went to the doctor said yep you need glasses i came home not even a day later i came home to this <laughs> this is noah this is jethro And this is probably three or four years ago or so. And they had taken some sunglasses that they found around the house. Thankfully, we don't buy expensive sunglasses. And they poked the lenses out of them and put them on so that they could be like daddy. And, And, you know, the point of it is that I didn't tell them to do that. And if I had, it wouldn't mean anything. This wouldn't be a story. Um, but they did it out of their own natural love and desire to be like their father. they admire and love their father, and so they want to be like him and and that 's in in essence kind of what Paul is going to root this whole chapter in uh, unfortunately it 's not just cute things like this that they observe you know they they also they also sometimes are in the back seat, you know. My family, we drive a lot. We commute here. We're in the car nearly two hours every day. And uh, so a lot of things, a lot of things God has sanctified me uh, with on the way. And I pray to God that they forget them. Uh, but there was a, not too long ago, I was, I, I don't remember what the person did. I'm using the word person kindly instead of the word I want to use. They cut me off, did something awful, and I had self restraint. I went, mm-hmm, "God bless you," you know, under my breath. And and from the far back seat, I hear my my then seven year old Noah, "Oh, this guy." And I thought maybe he learned that from his mother. And. Uh, I'm perfect saint in that area, but the point is that if we're sons and daughters of God, then we're going to naturally emulate him. We're going to catch on to his language and his thoughts and his way of being. We're going to desire to be humble as he is humble, kind, merciful, compassionate as he is compassionate. We're going to be full of this this extravagant, self-sacrificial love for others. And so with that as the foundation, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrance, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The sense of smell, scientists tell us, of all the five senses is the most directly linked to our memory. That's why I can smell ammonia, that awful smell, and be instantly back in third grade in my elementary school where they used to clean the tables and floors, probably with the same mop, with ammonia. And I remember that smell to the point where I am, I'm seeing friends that I haven't thought about in years. That's the power of smell. It's also something by which we can be identified. You know, if you wear the same aftershave or cologne or perfume with regularity, uh, you come to be identified by that to the point where you may have passed through the offices here at Rio Vista 10 minutes ago, and you're nowhere to be found now, but I can walk in and go, "Ah, oh, Amanda was here. Don't worry, I made up Amanda. I'm not picking on anyone actually named Amanda. But the point is that you leave a lasting, memorable impression on people. That's what the the scent does. That's what a fragrance does. And so perhaps in part, at least for those reasons, it was very common in the ancient world, in cities like Ephesus, to see perfumes and fragrances of different kinds, incense and so forth, as part of their worship. We know that there were some ancient Roman cults that created distinctly different scents for every god, and so if you worship this god, this was the scent. If you worship that god, it was that scent. The idea being that I could identify, just based on the aroma you're putting off, that you worship this god. In the book of Exodus, it's It's described in in Exodus 30, where God is talking to Moses and giving him instructions for the tabernacle, how to set it up. And one of the instructions is, make a fragrance, put spices together, make this fragrance, and season it with salt, he says. And we think maybe that's to make it stand apart even more, to contrast from all the other uh, uh, aromas of other gods. But season it with salt, and, and same thing with burnt offerings. Also seasoned with salt, and the Bible says it was it would go up as a pleasing aroma to God. And so there's something about this fragrance that Paul is trying to draw our attention to as a as a, a sort of sacrificial um, um, essence that we put that we give to people as we go through our lives. And so if you spent time in the tabernacle, you're going to leave with that aroma on your clothes, reminding whoever you passed of God's presence. And so I think that's why we're told in Colossians 4, 6, uh, he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It's so that we would carry the memory of Jesus' own presence wherever we went. And the salt, if you will, for us Christ followers today, um, that sets us apart from the world is a self-sacrificial love. As as Tom said, you'll know they're my disciples by their love. Self-sacrificial love, and Paul's also going to tag in thanksgiving, a grateful heart in this chapter. In verse 2, he says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering to the Father, and so should be the life of every believer is the idea, to be a living, fragrant sacrifice. And you say, okay, well, that's really flowery and wonderful and all, but what on earth does that actually mean? Uh, what does it look like to be a Christian who stands out from the world as a fragrant offering. Uh you can look to the early church. Sam Cassim Smith, one of our pastors here has studied a lot in the early church, sent me some material. I wish I could get into all of it because it's all brilliant. But what you see in the early church is very humbling to say the least. These Christians faced horrendous things. And they behaved in a way that honestly is just still astonishing uh, to us today. And um, in the Roman Empire, there was a tremendous disparity between the poor and the wealthy, between the powerful and the weak, so much so that you have people like Plato saying, basically, there's no use for a beggar. Let's just be done with them and let them die in the street. You have these awful emperors saying, if it's a baby born with defects, just toss it, just, just get rid of it, destroy it. And in that context, you have this early church father, we, we read in his writing, uh, Dionysius, he writes this uh, as he observes the Christians of that time, he says this, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. He's talking about their reaching into the sicknesses, the diseased, the the outcasts. Heedless of danger, these Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely, happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathen, he says, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. And I think that is what Paul is driving at. That's what he means by being a fragrant offering, sacrifice to Christ, a living sacrifice. In Second Corinthians 2, he he continues that thought of fragrance and says, you know, we follow Christ and we, we give off this aroma of Christ wherever we go to both the saved and the lost. And so think of that in light of what we're dealing with currently. Uh, this virus, you know, we all want to be protective of our own, but it does call us to be a little bit more brave maybe than usual. And say, yes, I can help an elderly person who's who may be exposed or, or is potentially in, in danger of this virus. I can help that person. Um, it gives us a sort of bravery, the faith that we have. It gives us a courage that we can enter into people's suffering in that way. And the idea is that I think we ought to be of this fragrance, is we ought to be in Christ's presence so much that everywhere we go, it's His presence that people sense. It's His character that identifies us, and it's the works of His mighty power that are remembered forever, even at the risk of our own well-being. And while being His son or daughter, as we've said, does naturally kind of come out with the do's and don'ts, right? Uh, if I am emulating my father, if I am admiring and loving him and pressing into him, I'm going to naturally become more and more like him. Paul nonetheless gives us some behaviors that describe what not to do. He gives us some things that we need to be disciplined in our minds about. So he goes on in verse 3, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk no crude joking which are out of place but instead and here's his remedy let there be thanksgiving just think about what a grateful heart what thanksgiving would push back against in the, in this world you know in, in our own sinful hearts it would it would press back against our greed because we're content we're grateful but push push back against lust, against covetousness, against materialism, self-reliance, idolatry. And so remember what God has provided to you and be thankful for it. That's the idea. Is That's the remedy for a lot of these things is to be a son and daughter of God means we live with a grateful heart. And we go on in verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And that's a terrifying statement that ought to make us wake up a little bit, and I, I think that's a good thing if, if... If this prompts you to look at your own heart, your own life, and ask yourself, am I in reality a son or daughter of God, or am I a son or daughter of disobedience? I think the Spirit uses his word in that way to prompt us to consider those things. But if you are a child of God, the point here is not that if you've ever stumbled in sexual sin, if you've ever had an impure thought that the the inheritance that was given to you in Christ has been taken from you and you're no longer in in heaven, right? Uh, that's that's what it sounds like and it's terrifying, but it's not really the, the essence of what he's saying. It's, it's a matter of identity. Again, he keeps coming back to this identity. He said, uh, your identity is secure in Christ. Your inheritance is secure there, um, but it's the difference between I had a glass of wine and I'm a drunkard. I smoked a cigar and I'm a smoker. Uh, these are labels. These are completely different Things because one it expresses something that I did, and we all stumble, we all fall, uh, but one is the other is this is so much our identity that I can be called a sexually immoral person, and it is my God, it is my identity. And as such, I cannot also be identified as a child of God, is what he's saying. And so in verse 7, he goes on, Therefore, since your identity is a child of God, Do not become partners with them, the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. I would encourage you highlight, underline, circle, star, those three words in your Bibles. I just love that description that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness for instead uh, but instead expose them and how do we do that well it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret but when anything is exposed by the light it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light in other words those who partake in these works of darkness will remain in the dark until the light of Jesus shining through the way you walk has shone on them and exposes them, and therefore, he goes on and says, The Holy Spirit will say to those in darkness, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The point here, I think, is that the way we walk is really our first and most fundamental evangelism. It's your witness to those who live in darkness not just your relationship with Jesus, but what that says and communicates and influences in others. So even before we speak a word, we may share Christ with others simply by living that light of life that he's just described. Remember the example of the early church Christians. And so for the sake of the watching world is the idea, he goes on in 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says the days are evil because this fallen world will not change its trajectory unless God intervenes. And he intervenes through you, through his spirit abiding in you, through his light reflecting off of you. He pushes back the forces of darkness when the people of God are filled with his spirit, which he's going to talk about next. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the Bible, foolishness is always characterized as this self-reliance, this arrogance that, that shuns wisdom and advice. And wisdom is always characterized by fearing the Lord, by, by respecting elders and receiving their wisdom for life so that we can seek to know God's will is the idea and to walk in it. And the way we know God's will is through His Word. And the way the Lord uses, uh, the way the Holy Spirit tends to calibrate our hearts most often to walk in his will is through prayer. And so we've been in this 40-day prayer challenge, and it is a challenge at times. Tom has described some of the awkward scenarios and, and opportunities uh, that it has presented. And this 40-day of prayer challenge, I encourage you, go on a website, go on the app, sign up for it. You get just a little prayer prompt, a, a, a wonderful thought about prayer, brilliantly written by Andrew Murray. Um, and I would just encourage you to take part in that because it's through that kind of prayer that God recalibrates our hearts, our our desires to be in line with his. And now he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So why does, God, why does Paul choose drunkenness as the antithesis, the worldly opposite of being filled with the Spirit? We've talked about this before and at times, but excessive alcohol use, if you think about it, It affects your inhibitions. It lowers your inhibitions, which makes it much easier to participate in what Paul calls the unfruitful works of darkness. Um, It's easier to be flippant with your sexual morality. It's easier to be flippant with your language, with joking. It affects how you walk. It affects how you talk. It affects your ability uh, to remember things. It affects your awareness of danger. It affects your vision. And being filled with the Holy Spirit has a similar effect, but in a spiritual sense. It changes how you walk. It changes how you talk. It helps you when you're making decisions to make decisions in light of God's wisdom. And it heightens your spiritual senses such that you can be aware of God's presence and that you can be aware of the evil one and his voice in your, in your life. A drunkard won't stay drunk for long unless he continues to drink. And in the same way, we can be filled with the Spirit and discern these things and be, you know, really with it with the Lord in communication, but it, we don't just pray once and be filled with the Spirit. Uh, he's calling us to continually draw on Him as the well for the constant refilling of His Spirit is the idea. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And once you're filled, He's going to say, then come together in this environment or That environment, wherever you are, we're assuming that you're with us. Once you've been spiritually filled, come together to worship and address one another, he says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, I have this fear that the individualistic culture that we live in has 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 infiltrated the church so much so that it's normal. It's, it's this idea that we come to church to come together only to be alone, and we tried to illustrate that with an image. You know, it's we're, there's no sense that we're all sharing in common there's no sense that we're all participating together in worship it's we happen to be a lot near of some people while we focus and put the blinders on and focus on our walk with god and and i think that is a tendency it's not of course at all cases and it's a caricature but the point is that i think that the individualistic mentality does affect our worship because it's, it is easy to come to church and say, this man, I've had a rough week. I need to just be, I just need to be filled. I need to be re- in, in tune with God and, and really just worship him and give him my heart. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but there's more to it. Uh, there's more to it, Paul says, address one another. And so you ask, what does that mean? Well, uh, while there's nothing wrong with statements like these, you, you know, you, you can identify maybe this individual, uh, what we'll call the vertical relationship between you and God with some statements. Uh, there are some things that we say that just in pure-hearted, good intentions, we, we say, you know, I sing in my heart, I don't sing out loud. You know, I'm not much of a clapper, I just, you know, inside my heart I'm, I'm dancing and I'm free. Or just let the spirit move me and I'm just not going to worry about what anyone else in the room thinks. We have habits like always closing our eyes in worship with the idea of I got to focus. I got to tune out the distractions and I have to focus on God. We have habits like sitting in the back or coming late, leaving early, standing perfectly statue still so that we're not going to be noticed. And like I said, there's nothing particularly wrong about any one of those things on its on its face, at its face value, but worship is between you and God. There is a fellowship of the Spirit going vertically between you and God. But Paul is saying, address one another as you sing to God. And so in our weekly gathering, you know, we're we're quick to think about that, but how often do we think about this horizontal? And by that he means, how is your worship affecting others? How is my singing influencing my brothers and sisters behind me and in front of me and to my left and to my right? And it's consistent if you collect up the images that Paul has used so far in these first 21 verses of the chapter, you'll see a pattern. One person's pleasure in this fragrance, right? You wear perfume, it's for your happiness, but others are affected by it. Vertical, horizontal. One person's sex life, it can change an entire family and community. One person's escape to alcohol or substances can have devastating consequences on countless lives. And one person being filled with the Spirit of God influences others to seek after Christ. And when we worship together on Sundays, that's uniquely important to remember and understand because when we do worship God with both a me and God and a horizontal to one another view, the Holy Spirit can use your singing, your clapping, your shouting, your dancing out loud, to lift the head of the depressed in spirit. And you know that they're always among us. There are always people coming in here broken and weary and depressed. He can use your song, you can use your clapping, your your energy that you bring to worship to comfort those who mourn, to give peace to the troubled spirit, to break through the most impenetrable strongholds of the heart, to provide refuge for the abused to give permission to the blessed man to rejoice in the Lord. He uses your singing to give renewed strength to the most weary in heart. He uses your singing, get this, to spark revival. He's done it before, and I believe he'll do it again. And every time, historically, that there has been revival, it's been carried on the wings of music. Music accompanies this great movement of the Spirit of God and it transfers it down generation after generation in memorable melodies and rhythms and cadences so that even today we remember songs from the Reformation. But the most amazing and profound effect of your singing out loud and clapping that you just would never assume is possible is that God can actually use your voice, your participation, the way that you worship, outwardly, to cause an unbeliever, an outsider, to come in, see your worship, fall flat on his face, and say, surely God is among you, and confess to the Lord and become a believer in Christ. That's exactly what it describes in 1 Corinthians 14. The unbeliever comes in, well, why are you all, he's in the context of speaking in tongues, but the point is that when a believer comes when an unbeliever comes in and watches you worship it can have the impact in their heart of it says the secrets of his heart will be disclosed is the language and falling on his face he'll confess surely god is among you and so in a sense god will use your participation outwardly in worship even to convict of sin and and cause repentance to stir in someone's heart and lead them to Christ but that all depends on one thing and that's not just singing it in my heart and in my head and thinking high thoughts of God, but it does require of us some kind of outward expression because God can hear my song in here, but you can't. You don't benefit from my singing, my clapping, my dancing if it's all in here. And so what that means, practically speaking, is that's going to make some uncomfortable moments for you where you're going to have to decide if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to to be like this in worship or like this. You're going to have to decide, is this is this truly being moved in my heart? And then just to be willing, you know, if you're not normally a hand raiser, okay, let's maybe stretch a little bit and start here. If you're not normally a clapper, do your best. You know, you don't have to always be on rhythm. If you're not a great, if you don't have a great voice, sing along. Uh, you know, the idea here is that if you're typically comfortable worshiping kind of in this, in this bubble with the idea that your worship has little effect on the people around you, just to become aware of that is a first step. Be aware of the fact that, you know, if you one Sunday morning feel like the best use of my Sabbath rest today will be to stay in bed and, and chill out and relax and not go to church, <clears throat> there may be a day for that. I don't know, but, When that happens, I want one other consideration in your heart to be, but I need to remember that my brothers and sisters in the room are counting on me in a sense. If you're not here, if you're not expressing your worship, I can't benefit from it. I can't be sharpened and encouraged. If I'm the depressed in spirit and I don't hear anyone singing, how... How can I be encouraged? And that's the idea of what he's describing here is that we would be able to do that and, and, and come together. And so it's going to be a paradigm shift, I think, in some ways for people. But I do want us to continu- continually think about that vertical, horizontal dimension in our worship. It's not just you and God. It's it's us and God. And I'll leave you with this illustration of that. Um, you know, we are tuned individually through the week, in a sense, to God through personal worship. And there's this great quote by a, a theologian named A.W. Tozer. And he said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? And that's, I think, what God is wanting from our worship. You know, we we go through the week scattered about. Right now, we're scattered all over the place. And yet we're staying in tune the best we can by the Holy Spirit's help to the, to the Savior, to Christ. And then we come together on Sunday mornings. And what's different about Sunday morning than personal worship? Well, it's that now we can listen to one another. We can, in a sense, tune our hearts, yes, to Jesus, but retune ourselves. You know, I come in here sometimes. I need to have a, have a, you know, an edge knocked off of my, of my sharpness or whatever it may be. I, I need to be retuned to Christ and to one another. And in that sense, we're unified. And so to kind of wrap all of that up, um, we're going to remember that as dearly loved children of God, that's the foundation, that's the beginning. We're dearly loved children of God, and therefore we're going to imitate our Heavenly Father. Wherever we go, we're to carry the fragrance and love of love and thanksgiving. And then whenever we gather again together in this room, hopefully sooner than later, we're going to do as it says in Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. And one way you can be sure to do that encouraging work is to come to church and to sing to one another as much as you sing to God. Even as we're scattered, consider your brothers and sisters and how how you're going to come back to this community even, even better. We pray for us, and then I want to enter into a time of reflection. Father, I thank you that your love for us is so profound, so rich and deep that you would call us sons and daughters. Lord, not one of us is worthy. We would all be disqualified if it was about our perfection, our imitating you perfectly. But, Lord, we glory in your grace, your kindness, the fact that you have given us Jesus, and that we can rely on his good works, that we can rely on what he has done for us and have assurance of our salvation, that eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away. Father, we come to you now in a time of reflection. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you prompt in our hearts whatever it is you need to expose. I pray, Father, that this time would be a moment of stillness in this chaotic time and that it would be between us and you, God, the the church and their Savior. God, would it be a time of of communion, of, of real conversation? So just take a minute, church, quiet your heart. Those of you watching online, well, everybody, It may be more difficult for you, I recognize that, to make the place you're at a sanctuary, but do what you can. Take five seconds, shut out the distractions, close whatever you need to close. Now, I want you to meditate on the character of your father. We've described some of those characteristics, but he may bring others to mind. Think of your father whose family likeness you're meant to take after. He's patient. He's humble, compassionate, self-sacrificially loving. Fill in the blank. What else do you think of when you see your Heavenly Father? And now think about your own character. How does your life imitate the Father in your speech, in your conduct, in your priorities, And now if you'd pick at least one of those characteristics of your character, perhaps that you would identify as for certain, not perfectly imitating Christ. And if you're willing to lay that down before him, carry it to him and say, uh, Lord, I confess this to you, I repent of it. Uh, It may prompt further confession through the day for you. It may be something that you take home and and journal about. But take a minute and, and bring before the Father those ways in which we do not imitate him as we should, as his sons and daughters. Merciful Father, we carry to you our burdens, we carry to you our our faults, the brokenness and all, Lord, you receive us with open arms. With a smile on your face as any father greeting his son or daughter, Lord, you look on us with kindness and favor. So we praise you, Lord, for that. We thank you that your mercy never ends. Your faithfulness to such, a, such an unfaithful people just knows no bounds. That you love forgiving even more than we love sinning. So we pray, God, that you would empower us this day to walk as your sons and daughters in full confidence that we have an inheritance that cannot fade. Lord, that we would be your hands and feet, that we would be the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing that we would be brave, Lord, and enter into people's suffering, whatever that may mean. Pray that you'd give us that confidence. And Lord, unify us, even as we're scattered all over the county and elsewhere. Lord, would you maintain that spirit of bond, of peace and unity? Would you keep us mindful of the fact that it's never just my relationship, Lord. We're just one stone of many that comprise the temple that you're building for your worship, for your presence. So Lord, be with our brothers and sisters wherever they may be. Receive our worship and our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.